Introductory Epistle, Part A, of the Monastery by Walter Scott. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Introductory Epistle, Part A, from Captain Clutterbuck, late of His Majesty's Regiment of Infantry, to the author of Waverley. Sir. Although I do not pretend to the pleasure of your personal acquaintance, like many whom I believe to be equally strangers to you, I am nevertheless interested in your publications, and desire their continuance. Not that I pretend to much taste in fictitious composition, or that I am apt to be interested in your grave scenes, or amused by those which are meant to be lively. I will not disguise from you that I have yawned over the last interview of Maclevor and his sister and fell fairly asleep while the schoolmaster was reading the humours of Dandy Dinmont. You see, sir, that I scorn to solicit your favour in a way to which you are no stranger. If the papers I enclose you are worth nothing, I will not endeavour to recommend them by personal flattery, as a bad cook pours rancid butter upon stale fish. No, sir. What I respect in you is the light you have occasionally thrown on national antiquities a study which I have commenced rather late in life, but to which I am attached with the devotions of a first love, because it is the only study I ever cared a farthing for. You shall have my history, sir, it will not reach to three volumes, before that of my manuscript, and as you usually throw out a few lines of verse, by way of skirmishers, I suppose, at the head of each division of prose, I have had the luck to light upon a stanza in the schoolmaster's copy of Burns, which describes me exactly. I love it the better, because it was originally designed for Captain Gross, an excellent antiquary, though, like yourself, somewhat too apt to treat with levity his own pursuits. Tis said he was a soldier bred, and ain wed rather fain than fled. But now he's quit the spurtle blade, and dogskin wallet, and tain the antiquarian trade, I think they call it. I never could conceive what influenced me when a boy in the choice of a profession. Military zeal and ardour it was not, which made me stand out for a commission in the Scots Fusiliers, when my tutors and curators wished to bind me apprentice to old David Stiles, clerk to His Majesty's signet. I say military zeal it was not for I was no fighting boy in my own person, and cared not a penny to read the history of the heroes who turned the world upside down in former ages. As for courage, I had, as I have since discovered, just as much of it as served my turn, and not one frame of surplus. I soon found out, indeed, that in action there was more anger in running away than in standing fast, and besides, I could not afford to lose my commission which was my chief means of support. But as for that overboiling valour, which I have heard many of ours talk of, though I seldom observed that it influenced them in the actual affair, that exuberant zeal which courts danger as a bride, truly my courage was of a complexion much less ecstatical. Again, the love of a red coat, which in default of all other aptitudes to the profession has made many a bad soldier and some good ones, was an utter stranger to my disposition. I cared not a bottle for the company of the misses. Nay, though there was a boarding-school in the village, and though we used to meet with its fair inmates at Simon Lightfoot's weekly practising, I cannot recollect any strong emotions being excited on these occasions, 
excepting the infinite regret with which I went through the polite ceremonial of presenting my partner with an orange, thrust into my pocket by my aunt for this special purpose, but which, had I dared, I certainly would have secreted for my own personal use. As for vanity or love of finery for itself, I was such a stranger to it that the difficulty was great to make me brush my coat and appear in proper trim upon parade. I shall never forget the rebuke of my old colonel on a morning when the king reviewed a brigade of which ours made a part. "'I am no friend to extravagance, Ensign Clutterbuck,' said he. "'But on the day when we are to pass before the sovereign of the kingdom, in the name of God, I would have at least shown him an inch of clean linen.' Thus a stranger to the ordinary motives which lead young men to make the army their choice, and without the least desire to become either a hero or a dandy, I really do not know what determined my thoughts that way, unless it were the happy state of half-pay indolence enjoyed by Captain Doolittle, who had set up his staff of rest in my native village. Every other person had, or seemed to have, something to do, less or more. They did not, indeed, precisely go to school and learn tasks, that last of evils in my estimation. But it did not escape my boyish observation that they were all bothered with something or other like duty or labour all but the happy Captain Doolittle. The minister had his parish to visit, and his preaching to prepare, though perhaps he made more fuss than he needed about both. The laird had his farming and improving operations to superintend, and besides he had to attend trustee meetings, and lieutenancy meetings, and head courts, and meetings of justices, and what not, was as early up that I detested, and as much in the open air wet and dry as his own grieve. The shopkeeper, the village boasted but one of eminence, stood indeed pretty much at his ease behind his counter, for his custom was by no means overburdensome, but he enjoyed his status, as the bailey calls it, upon condition of tumbling all the wares in his booth over and over, when any one chose to want a yarn of muslin, a mouse-trap, an ounce of caraways, a paper of pins, the sermons of Mr. Pedden, or the life of Jack the Giant Queller, not Killer as usually erroneously written and pronounced. See my essay on the true history of this worthy, where real facts have in a peculiar degree been obscured by fable. In short, all in the village were under the necessity of doing something which they would rather have left undone, excepting Captain Doolittle, who walked every morning in the open street, which formed the high mall of our village, in a blue coat with a red neck and played at whist the whole evening when he could make up a party. This happy vacuity of all employment appeared to me so delicious, that it became the primary hint which, according to the system of Helvetius, as the minister says, determined my infant talents towards the profession I was destined to illustrate. But who, alas, can form a just estimate of their future prospects in this deceitful world? I was not long engaged in my new profession, before I discovered that if the independent indolence of half-pay was a paradise, the officer must pass through the purgatory of duty and service in order to gain admission to it. Captain Doolittle might brush his blue coat with the red neck, or leave it unbrushed at his pleasure. But Ensign Clutterbuck had no such option. Captain Doolittle might go to bed at ten o'clock, if he had a mind. But the Ensign must make the rounds in his turn. What was worse, the captain might repose under the tester of his tent-bed until noon, if he was so pleased, 
but the ensign, God help him, had to appear upon parade at peep of day. As for duty, I made that as easy as I could, had the sergeant to whisper to me the words of command, and bustled through as other folks did. Of service I saw enough for an indolent man, was buffeted up and down the world, and visited both the East and West Indies, Egypt, and other distant places, which my youth had scarce dreamed of. The French I saw, and felt, too, witnessed two fingers on my right hand, which one of their cursed hussars took off with his sabre as neatly as an hospital surgeon. At length, the death of an old aunt, who left me some fifteen hundred pounds, snugly vested in the three per cents, gave me the long-wished-for opportunity of retiring, with the prospect of enjoying a clean shirt and a guinea four times a week at least. For the purpose of commencing my new way of life, I selected for my residence the village of Kennequare, in the south of Scotland, celebrated for the ruins of its magnificent monastery, intending there to lead my future life in the otium cum dignitate of half-pay and annuity. I was not long, however, in making the grand discovery that in order to enjoy leisure it is absolutely necessary it should be preceded by occupation. For some time it was delightful to wake at daybreak, dreaming of the reveil, then to recollect my happy emancipation from the slavery that doomed me to start at a piece of clattering parchment, turn on my other side, damn the parade, and go to sleep again. But even this enjoyment had its termination, and time, when it became a stock entirely at my own disposal, began to hang heavy on my hand. I angled for two days, during which time I lost twenty hooks and several scores of yards of gut and line, and caught not even a minnow. Hunting was out of the question, for the stomach of a horse by no means agrees with the half-pay establishment. When I shot, the shepherds and ploughmen and my very dog quizzed me every time that I missed, which was, generally speaking, every time I fired. Besides, the country gentlemen in this quarter liked their game and began to talk of prosecutions and interdicts. I did not give up fighting the French to commence a domestic war with the pleasant men of Teviotdale, as the song calls them. So I e'en spent three days, very agreeably, in cleaning my gun and disposing it upon two hooks over my chimney-piece. The success of this accidental experiment set me on trying my skill in the mechanical arts. Accordingly I took down and cleaned my landlady's cuckoo-clock and in so doing silenced that companion of the spring for ever and a day. I mounted a turning lathe, and in attempting to use it I very nearly cribbed off with an inch and half former one of the fingers which the hussar had left me. Books I tried, both those of the little circulating library and of the more rational subscription collection maintained by this intellectual people. But neither the light reading of the one nor the heavy artillery of the other, suited my purpose. I always fell asleep at the fourth or fifth page of history or disquisition, and it took me a month's hard reading to wade through a half-bound trashy novel, during which I was pestered with applications to return the volumes by every half-bred milliner's miss about the place. In short, during the time when all the town besides had something to do, I had nothing for it but to walk in the churchyard and whistle till it was dinner-time. During these promenades, the ruins necessarily forced themselves on my attention, and by degrees I found myself engaged in studying the more minute ornaments, 
and at length the general plan of this noble structure. The old sexton aided my labours, and gave me his portion of traditional lore, every day added something to my stock of knowledge respecting the ancient state of the building, and at length I made discoveries concerning the purpose of several detached and very ruinous portions of it, the use of which had hitherto been either unknown altogether or erroneously explained. The knowledge which I thus acquired I had frequent opportunities of retailing to those visitors whom the progress of a Scottish tour brought to visit this celebrated spot. Without encroaching on the privilege of my friend the sexton, I became gradually an assistant cicerone in the task of description and explanation, and often, seeing a fresh party of visitors arrive, has he turned over to me those to whom he had told half his story, with the flattering observation, "'What needs I say? Ony mare about it. There's the captain kens mare anent it than I do, or any man in town.' Then would I salute the strangers courteously, and expatiate to their astonished minds upon crypts and chancels and knaves, arches, Gothic and Saxon, architraves, mullions and flying buttresses. It not unfrequently happened that an acquaintance which commenced in the abbey concluded in the inn, which served to relieve the solitude as well as the monotony of my landlady's shoulder of mutton, whether roast cold or hashed. By degrees my mind became enlarged. I found a book or two which enlightened me on the subject of Gothic architecture, and I read now with pleasure, because I was interested in what I read about. Even my character began to dilate and expand. I spoke with more authority at the club, and was listened to with deference, because on one subject, at least, I possessed more information than any of its members. Indeed, I found that even my stories about Egypt which, to say the truth, were somewhat threadbare, were now listened to with more respect than formerly. The captain, they said, had something in him after awe. There were few folk kenned say muckle about the abbey. With this general approbation waxed my own sense of self-importance, and my feeling of general comfort. I ate with more appetite, I digested with more ease, I lay down at night with joy, and slept sound till morning when I arose with a sense of busy importance, and hied me to measure, to examine, and to compare the various parts of this interesting structure. I lost all sense and consciousness of certain unpleasant sensations of a nondescript nature, about my head and stomach, to which I had been in the habit of attending, more for the benefit of the village apothecary than my own, for the pure want of something else to think about. I had found out an occupation unwittingly, and was happy because I had something to do. In a word, I had commenced local antiquary, and was not unworthy of the name. Whilst I was in this pleasing career of busy idleness, for so it might at best be called, it happened that I was one night sitting in my little parlour adjacent to the closet which my landlady calls my bedroom, in the act of preparing for an early retreat to the realms of Morpheus. Dugdale's monasticon, borrowed from the library at A, was lying on the table before me flanked by some excellent Cheshire cheese, a present, by the way, from an honest London citizen to whom I had explained the difference between a Gothic and a Saxon arch, and a glass of Vanderhagen's best ale. Thus armed, at all points against my old enemy, Time, I was leisurely and deliciously preparing for bed, 
now reading a line of old Dugdale, now sipping my ale or munching my bread and cheese, now undoing the strings at my breeches' knees or a button or two of my waistcoat, until the village clock should strike ten, before which time I make it a rule never to go to bed. A loud knocking, however, interrupted my ordinary process on this occasion, and the voice of my honest landlord of the George was heard vociferating. Footnote. The George was, and is, the principal inn in the village of Kennequare, or Melrose, but the landlord of the period was not the same civil and quiet person by whom the inn is now kept. David Kyle, a Melrose proprietor of no little importance, a first-rate person of consequence in whatever belonged to the business of the town, was the original owner and landlord of the inn. Poor David, like many other busy men, took so much care of public affairs as in some degree to neglect his own. There are persons still alive at Kennequare who can recognize him and his peculiarities in the following sketch of mine, host of the George. End footnote. What the devil, Mrs. Grimsley's? The captain is knowing his bed, and a gentleman at our house has ordered a fowl and minced collops and a bottle of sherry, and has sent to ask him to supper, to tell him all about the abbey. Nah answered Lucky Grimsley's, in the true sleepy tone of a Scottish matron, when ten o'clock is going to strike. He's no in his bed, but I's warrant him no gay outer this time o' night to keep folks sitting up waiting for him. The captain's a decent man. I plainly perceived this last compliment was made for my hearing, by way both of indicating and of recommending the course of conduct which Mrs. Grimsley's desired I should pursue. But I had not been knocked about the world for thirty years and odd and lived a bluff bachelor all the while to come home and be put under petticoat government by my landlady. Accordingly, I opened my chamber door, and desired my old friend David to walk upstairs. "'Captain,' said he as he entered, "'I am as glad to find you up as if I had hooked a twenty-pound salmon. There's a gentleman up yonder that will not sleep sound in his bed this blessed night, unless he has the pleasure to drink a glass of wine with you.' "'You know, David,' I replied with becoming dignity, "'that I cannot with propriety go out to visit strangers at this time of night, "'or accept of invitations from people of whom I know nothing.' "'David swore a round oath, and added, "'Was ever the like heard of? "'He has ordered a fowl and egg-sauce, a pancake and minced collops, "'and a bottle of sherry. "'Do you think I would come up and ask you to go to keep company "'with only a bit English rider that sups on toasted cheese "'and a cheerer of rum-toddy?' This is a gentleman every inch of him, and a virtuoso, a clean virtuoso, a sad-coloured stand of clothes, and a wig like the curled back of a mug you. The very first question he speared was about the old drawbrig, that has been seen at the bottom of the water these twelve score years. I have seen the foundations when we were sticking salmon, and how the devil should he ken only thing about the old drawbrig unless he were a virtuoso. Footnote. There is more to be said about this old bridge hereafter. See note, page 57. End footnote. David, being a virtuoso in his own way, and moreover a landholder and heritor, was a qualified judge of all who frequented his house, and therefore I could not avoid again tying the strings of my knees. "'That's right, Captain,' vociferated David. "'You twa will be as thick as three in a bed an ancier for gather. I hanna seen the like o' him 
my very cell, since I saw the great Dr. Samuel Johnson on his tower through Scotland, Wilk Tower is lying in me back parlour for the amusement of my guests, with the twa boards torn off. Then the gentleman is a scholar, David? I's a pot him a scholar, answered David. He has a black coat on, or a brown ane, at any rate. Is he a clergyman? I am thinking no for he looked after his horse's supper before he spoke of his ain," replied mine host. "'Has he a servant?' demanded I. "'Nay, servant,' answered David, "'but a grand face of his ain that would gar onybody be willing to serve him that looks upon him. And what makes him think of disturbing me? Ah, David, this has been some of your chattering. You are perpetually bringing your guests on my shoulders as if it were my business to entertain every man who comes to the George.' "'What the deal would ye have me do, Captain?' answered mine host. "'A gentleman lights down, and asks me in a most earnest manner, what man of sense and learning there is about our town, that can tell him about the antiquities of the place, and specially about the old abbey. Ye wadna have me tell the gentleman a lee? And ye can weel enough there is naebody in the town can say a reasonable word about it, be it no yourself, except the bedrill, and he is as foul as a piper by this time.' So, says I, there's Captain Clutterbuck, that's a very civil gentleman, and has little to do for be telling the old cracks about the abbey, and dwells just hard by. Then says the gentleman to me, Sir, says he, very civilly, have the goodness to step to Captain Clutterbuck with my compliments, and say I am a stranger, who have been led to these parts chiefly by the fame of these ruins, and that I would call upon him, but the hour is late." and mare he said that i have forgotten but i will remember it ended and landlord get a bottle of your best sherry and supper for two you wouldna have me refuse to do the gentleman's bidding and me a publican well david said i i wish your virtuoso had taken a fitter hour but as you say he is a gentleman i's pod him in that the order speaks for itself a bottle of sherry minched collops and a fowl that's speaking like a gentleman i trow that's right captain Button wheel up, the night's raw, but the water's clearing for all that. We'll be on it neist night with my lord's boats, and we'll ha ill luck if I dinna send you a kipper to relish your ale at Ian. Footnote: The nobleman whose boats are mentioned in the text is the late kind and amiable Lord Somerville, an intimate friend of the author. David Kyle was a constant and privileged attendant when Lord Somerville had a party for spearing salmon. On such occasions, eighty or a hundred fish were often killed between Gleamer and Letterfoot. End footnote. End of introductory epistle, part A.